to the Cover 2 PPT podcast series, a podcast series about people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction. We were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. In February, I interviewed Evan Ratliff, the author of The Mastermind, a compelling book about a man by the name of Paul LaRue, who single-handedly built an online drug empire and enticed hundreds of doctors to participate in his scheme that was ultimately responsible for dumping millions of pain pills into our country each year. Until finally, authorities caught up to him in 2012. Last month, Mr. LaRue finally went before Judge Ronnie Abrams for sentencing. Today, in this second part of our two-part series on The Mastermind, we'll talk with Evan Ratliff once again to get his reaction to some bizarre twists in the sentencing proceedings. If you'd like to hear part one, go to cover2.org and tune in to episode 273. Enjoy part two, the sentencing of a mastermind. Evan, first of all, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be back. So Paul LaRue cooperated with the government for eight long years, and his sentencing day just kept getting postponed one time after another. But finally, last month, it happened. So set the stage for that sentencing. Paul LaRue, you know, he had a a very long and colorful criminal career. So there was a lot wrapped up in the sentencing process because, you know, he was originally investigated by the DEA for selling painkillers over the internet to American customers. That was the original crime that they investigated him for, starting in 2006. And then the investigation, which lasted over many years, you know, as that happened, he was also getting into other areas of crime, eventually dealing large-scale narcotics around the world, cocaine, methamphetamines, uh, arms dealing. There was violence associated with his organization. He ordered people killed, uh, particularly in the Philippines where he was based. He was also involved in black market gold dealing and setting up uh, a militia in Somalia, attempted coup ideas. Like he, he was just a a maximalist when it came to crime. So, so the case ended up being um, kind of unusual in that when they arrested Paul LaRue in 2012 in Liberia, the DEA lured him to Liberia for drug deal and they arrested him. He almost immediately wanted to cooperate. So he wanted to cooperate on the plane home. So he began cooperating. He signed a cooperation agreement. He helped the DEA capture uh, people who had worked for him, so his underlings, essentially, including some members of his kill team, uh, including some members of his prescription drug sales operation, which were then, they were lured into various sting operations and brought to the U.S. So that was his cooperation. He had also sort of uh, hinted slash promised that he could cooperate and tell them about other things he'd done, including selling weapons to Iran and buying drugs out of North Korea, sort of big geopolitical national security implication type uh, cooperation, which never really panned out. 
but those were the things that also um, attracted the attention of other government organizations to investigate him. So they got more resources at that point once the the opportunity kind of broadened for them. Yeah. So the 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 amount of sort of the volume and and the the uh, scale of the crime that he was involved in, including these sort of very high profile things like selling weapons to Iran. That was the reason why the investigation sort of moved from uh, a couple of investigators in Minnesota who were investigating just the prescription drug part up to what's called the 960 group, which is uh, the intersection of terrorism and narcotics, narco-terrorism. Those are the crimes they investigate. So he got on that radar, and that was sort of what led to the sting operation that, that got him. And then when he was cooperating there was a sort of hint or promise that he could give them something really, really big. It turned out what he gave them was people who worked for him. That's what they got out of Paul LaRue, was they were able to arrest some people who had worked for him and done bad things for him. So he had pleaded guilty to all of these crimes, including methamphetamine trafficking, uh, breaking the embargo with Iran, uh, some of the prescription drug crimes, but he also did not have to plead guilty directly to murders, for instance. He, he confessed to the murders, but those were under his cooperation agreement. So you had this strange situation where he was an admitted uh, murderer. He had ordered murders. He had testified against the mercenaries that he had paid to carry out murders for him. And those people had gotten life in prison. And now you have Paul LaRue waiting to be sentenced, who has cooperated with the government. So... You're supposed to, under our system, get a break if you do that. And he's also confessed to these uh, pretty heinous crimes and pled guilty to another set of crimes with a set of sentencing guidelines around them. So it, it was a very sort of complex situation that was playing out over a long period of time. And I think when we talked last time, I probably said, I have no idea what he's going to get. And, I, and I, I truly did not know what he was going to get. Yeah. So before we get to that, the thing that brought me into this, want to profile this, the, the whole story there, is the fact that he kind of created the blueprint for a drug cartel and how a drug cartel can build their business on the internet. Um, can you walk us through that? That's a very important part of this story. Yeah, so uh, Paul LaRue had this organization, which he generally called or, or traveled under the name RX Limited. Uh, it was based in the Philippines. It was based out of, you know, his own uh, internet savvy and technical pra- prowess. He was a programmer, uh, is a programmer. Um, and the way it worked was he wanted to sell uh, drugs over the internet to American customers. And by drugs, I mean prescription drugs. And so he would set up websites or enable other people to set up web- websites, give them templates to set up websites that would offer these drugs for sale, whether everything from, uh, you know, uh, the sort of like penal enhancement kind of stuff uh, to painkillers. And it turned out that painkillers were by far the most lucrative. So it ended up really settling around painkillers. That's what they sold, three in particular, Soma, uh, Tramadol, and Fioracet. So I think of those three, one is an actual opioid, synthetic opioid, uh, Tramadol. Um, Mm -hmm. And so the way the sites worked was it was pretty ingenious, which is he's overseas. His entire operation is overseas. He's got call centers in the Philippines and Israel. He's operating out of the Philippines. And then in the U.S., 
he recruited doctors and pharmacists, particularly sort of uh, individual operators or small town doctors and pharmacists to be part of the network. So you go to the website and you say, I want to buy some tramadol. You buy the tramadol, you put it in your cart. They ask you in a kind of questionnaire, what are your symptoms? Why do you need tramadol? You fill that out with whatever you want. And then that all gets sent to a doctor virtually, like your questionnaire gets sent to a doctor. That doctor looks at the questionnaire, says, okay, I'm writing a prescription for this person for tramadol. That prescription gets input into the system. It gets sent to the pharmacy. And then the pharmacy puts the tramadol in a FedEx envelope, which is paid for by RX Limited, that gets sent out to the customer. So the customer never has to see a doctor. You know, the doctor presumably is looking at the questionnaire, although later they discover that, you know, some of the doctors were approving hundreds of these a day. It wasn't really possible for them to even have looked at the questionnaires. And none of the actual LaRue operation ever has to set foot in the United States. It's all people who are already here who are sort of taking the risk on his behalf. And, you know, this thing worked for really solidly from 2004 to about 2011 making him hundreds of millions of dollars selling primarily those three drugs. So wouldn't it be pretty obvious what was going on for the pharmacies that are participating, that this was really illegal? Or for them, did it appear to be above board? What would you say? I think for the pharmacies, there was a, there was a range. And a lot of the evidence, a lot of evidence came out in a, in a trial in Minnesota of some of the doctors and pharmacists. Um, who I should say were acquitted of any crime. Uh, the ones who actually took it to trial were, were ultimately acquitted, um, two, uh, two doctors in particular. Um, but you, know, you saw that some of the pharmacists uh, definitely knew it was illegal and were just, you know, give me more, give me more, or I think the feds are watching us uh, kind of stuff that you would see in the emails. And other ones you know, it was more a matter of they were confused about the law. And frankly, the law was quite confusing because these were not controlled substances. And so the regulations around them were not entirely clear. And the people who were contacting them were from Paul LaRue's organization were often saying things like, we'll, we'll connect you with a DE agent, an ex DE agent who can reassure you that this is all legal. And they would actually do that. They would have them talk to someone who God knows who it actually was, but it was not a, a D agent, an XD agent. Yeah. And so they would, they would be given the impression that it was all legal. And I think some people fell for it. I, I mean, when you have millions upon millions of dollars moving through your bank account that are transferred from Hong Kong for these drugs, like it's, it's hard to say that anyone could be just completely ignorant that this is not appropriate. Um, but some of the people even paid taxes on it. That was part of their defense. They said, I paid taxes on this. I thought it was completely legal. I filed taxes saying I was doing this and I paid the taxes on it. So I think some people were legitimately confused. Yeah. A, a compelling scam is what it sounds like. For so sure. when he built this, he built this cartel up to the point where he was shipping between 50 and 100 million pills a year. So mm -hmm. he, was, he, he could be considered a competitor with people like uh, Rite Aid. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially as an individual person who's running this whole thing, you know, it's, he's, not a, he's not an overseas drug company. He's just an individual person who came up with this scheme, built it. And I mean, part of, uh, to, to your earlier question about sort of like, should people have known? I mean, part of what's interesting to me is the 
the drug companies making this or the, or the wholesale distributors. Like I never really got into that part of it, but what did they know? Did they, did they think that the demand for the, the product had just skyrocketed for some re- reason? You know, I feel like there are a lot of places in the chain where you can look and say, uh, if people were paying attention, they knew something was wrong here. You know, sure. the shippers, everybody, the doctors, you know, and there were people who chose not to pay attention. And there are people who deliberately said, no, this is a great way to make money. I'm going to do it. So eight years ago, the government finally catches up to him. Uh, they execute a sting. And uh, here we are, uh, fast forward to last month, and his sentencing day finally arrives. What happened? So this, first I should say the sentencing had been delayed for years. Um, and it was always a bit of a mystery why uh, LaRue kept changing lawyers. He changed lawyers. He had, uh, I think, seven, depending on how you count, six or seven. He only had one of them for a few weeks, lawyers over the time. So it wasn't clear if it was about strategy. He was very concerned about what was going to happen to him in the Philippines if he got extradited to the Philippines, where some of the murders, all of the murders in question actually had taken place um, that he's now confessed to in, in, in American courts. So what happens if he goes to the Philippines? So there were all these concerns swirling around it. And so it got delayed again in May and every couple of months they would just file and it would be delayed and delayed. And then finally, uh, the, the sentencing documents were filed, uh, which is sort of the last step when those show up. And then the judge came in and, and uh, this is a judge, a federal judge in the Southern District of New York, uh, Judge Abrams. And she had actually, uh, they had switched her to be his sentencing judge because she had overseen the tr- murder trial of some of his henchmen at which Paul LaRue had testified. And I think in the end that may have actually worked against him because she had seen him on the stand as I had. I went to that trial over several days. and. I mean, it's very hard to judge how people emotionally are in that setting. But when it comes to sort of looking at whether someone was contrite about crimes that they had pleaded guilty to, mm-hmm. that is not the impression that Paul LaRue gives off. Like, if you, if you read the words, you might think that he was being contrite. But if you hear and see him, he does not give that impression. And that may just be that he's not good at giving the impression of what is, what is truly in his heart because of the Mm. way he talks. But I I think that judge, when she eventually spoke up, when she eventually sort of provided her justification for the sentencing, you know, part of what she said was that, uh, I'll just have to paraphrase because I don't have it in front of me, but you know, that she did not believe that he, he truly had sort of processed and, and considered the crimes that he had committed. Prior to sentencing LaRue, Judge Abrams summarized the case and her thoughts on its extenuating circumstances. Mr. LaRue trafficked in illegal pharmaceuticals, methamphetamine and cocaine. He smuggled gold, chemicals and weapons on several continents. He ran a weapons research and development program for the Iranian government. He attempted to acquire surface-to-air missiles. He laundered funds from a pharmaceutical company. He planned a coup in the Seychelles, and he bribed government officials in the Philippines, China, Laos, Africa, and Brazil. If Paul Calder LaRue had a situation that he could bribe or kill his way out of, he did so. So why is this sentencing difficult? 
why shouldn't he just get a life sentence like Hunter, Samia, and Stowell did? Because Mr. LaRue also cooperated with the government. He did so for years, and he put himself and his family at serious risk of harm. Although he initially attempted to bribe Liberian law enforcement in order to escape apprehension, once that effort proved unsuccessful and he was placed on an airplane to this district, he began the process of cooperating with the government. And while he failed to mention his involvement in murders and violence at first, he ultimately did and provided voluminous, detailed, and heavily corroborated information. He actively engaged in communications with various associates in furtherance of ongoing investigations and introduced them to DEA confidential informants. He testified in a hearing in Minnesota and before me at the trial of Hunter, Sammy, and Stillwell. Mr. LaRue's cooperation led to the dismantling of his mercenary organization, the arrest and prosecution of over a dozen of his criminal associates, the seizure of kilograms of methamphetamine in the Philippines, and the use of critical physical evidence, including the van used during Catherine Lee's murder. If judges don't give cooperating witnesses a significant benefit at sentencing, the criminal justice system will suffer. Fewer people will cooperate, and the government will be unable to make important cases like those involving the murder of Catherine Lee. Cooperation is integral to the system. The question then becomes how much of a benefit should Mr. LaRue get for his cooperation? How do I balance that interest with the other interests I mentioned earlier, including public safety, deterrence, just punishment, and the need to avoid unwarranted sentencing disparities? That previous trial that she had overseen, it did leave that impression. Mm. Yeah, she mentioned in the sentencing that uh, I listened to it. And, and she mentioned something about how in all the time that she's been exposed to him, she hadn't uh, experienced him being contrite in any way up until that very day of the sentencing. So, yeah, to your he point. Would say, to he your would point. say things like, you know, I keep the victims in my mind or I think about their families. And he would say, you know, I'm turning over a new leaf. You know, things but they were it's always a bit cliche in those settings. You know, I've seen that before. Like there's only so many ways you can say that, but it just, it was so rote that I think, I mean, she said essentially like she didn't really buy that. And uh, so when, when it's set up, you know, the argument, the defense made this argument that a lot of information had been leaked by the DEA, you know, to reporters. uh, And that was something that should count in LaRue's favor because it had put his, life in greater danger and to put him at greater risk to cooperate and to put his family's lives in danger. Yeah, that's and, very interesting. I mean, they spent a lot of time laying the groundwork for that and talking about, you know, how investigators even that were interviewed in, for another book, uh, how they came into play and, and leaked information. So. Yeah, that was all. I mean, I was aware of that from years of reporting and, uh, and my name came up in it too, although I, I, I was not leaked uh, information from the DEA, uh, probably a little bit to my chagrin. So uh, it didn't really involve me. I mean, they had some some issues with my book as well. But but yeah, I mean, it was the case that DEA agents had handed over uh, really uh, confidential information from the DEA uh, to a reporter who had 
was sort of writing a very DEA friendly book that was approved by the DEA press office. So that is something that is, uh, I would say, atypical, usually in active open investigations before people are sentenced in particular. Uh, that is not something any agent would do because it jeopardizes the investigation. I mean, fortunately for them, he had pled guilty, he was already cooperating. So uh, they probably viewed it as not that big a risk. Some of them then left the DEA, uh, appear to have uh, possibly made agreements to be in a movie about this situation. That was the claim by the defense. And I, I had heard that too over the years, or even that had been communicated to me. So, I mean, there was a situation where uh, there were agents involved who were sort of uh, out for their own aggrandizement in this situation. Um, whether that should bear on what the sentence that Paul LaRue should get it wasn't clear that there was a real legal connection there in terms of the legal justification for the sentence. It, it, it was bad and maybe inappropriate, but it seemed like that, that was probably for another setting. It wasn't necessarily relevant. I mean, it, it was relevant, but I don't think it was, the judge was, seemed unmoved by it. Sure. Seems like quite a conflict though. Another thing that came up and LaRue argued about, about this when he, it was the, the judge asked him if he had any uh, words for the court and, and uh, he spoke for, uh, gosh, it was quite a time for about 12 or more minutes. Anyhow, during that time, he talked about extradition to the Philippines and uh, all of the risks that that represented. LaRue talks about extradition to the Philippines and the threat of personal harm for himself and his family. But then there's a twist. What I can say is I have cooperated there. The DOJ will extradite me. There are outstanding arrest warrants in the Philippines. And uh, I have agreed I will pay restitution. And that's the first thing I uh, plan to do uh, for the family members that I, uh, I destroyed. And for the families that have suffered, I will pay restitution immediately. They effectively have death sentences on their heads. You are. The Philippines is a dangerous country. Uh, criminal groups and the police are involved in kidnapping and murder in the Philippines on a wholesale uh, basis. Uh, I can't say enough about the danger to my family because uh, I just can't put it in words. So the only way for me to have a full measure of justice is for me to be returned to the Philippines to face the arrest warrants that exist as well as the superseding and multiple murders which occurred in the Philippines and for me to cooperate and bring into system all the co-conspirators in the Philippines that I conspired with in that time. I'm the most culpable person, and I'm the person in the best position uh, to bring those people in and make sure they face justice. And I would have no objection to uh, the government removing me to the Philippines because the government can very easily verify that the charges in the Philippines exist at the very end, it really surprised me what he commented, that he would be willing to do that and go back and make things right. What was your impression? Yeah, my impression, this had been an issue, as I said, for a while, because he had expressed that he did not want to be extradited to the Philippines, or he was afraid of being extradited to the Philippines, um, even to the extent that defense lawyers in another case were suspicious and repeatedly questioned federal agents about whether or not they'd given him a deal that he would never get extradited. They'd said, cooperate with us and we'll, we'll make sure you never end up in the Philippines because, again, he was confessing here to murders that he had ordered in the Philippines. So 
if he were to be extradited, his defense, it's, it's going to be very narrow, the space in which he can defend himself, except maybe to get those confessions thrown out of a court there. So he was very concerned about that. But then he, he made this apparent U-turn in the, in the, both in the documents that he filed and also in the, in the sentencing itself. And it, it didn't really surprise me because it did seem like a gambit. His gambit was he was asking for time served in the U.S., so no more time in U.S. prisons, be sent to the Philippines, he won't resist extradition, and then he will plead guilty to everything in the Philippines or he'll, he'll admit to everything in the Philippines and then he'll serve his time and try to make it right. So that was his argument to the judge. I think anyone who's followed Paul LaRue's career over many years, as I have, knows that he also committed massive acts of bribery in the Philippines. For years, he stayed out of trouble in the Philippines by paying off people all the way up the chain, the, the law enforcement and political chain. So I, was, I would say suspicious that the strategy uh, might be uh, get to the Philippines and then see what you can do. Maybe, maybe they're, the, they're still the right judges, they're still the right prosecutors, still the right people that you can pay off, and then you're, then you're out free. Um, he's got plenty of money, from what I understand, to do that. Or perhaps he bought himself enough time to get those pieces in place, and now he knows that it's safe to be extradited. Who knows? Who knows? Could be. Could be. But what happened next then? So finally, the judges heard uh, his defense, the defense attorneys, the prosecuting attorney, and then uh, LaRue speaks. And then it's the judge's turn. What happened next? So the judge, uh, I mean, you could tell from the judge's tone, I think from the beginning of when she, she began issuing the sentence that it was not going to be good for LaRue. I mean, he, he, she, she gave him 25 years in prison. He served, I think, something like 93, 94 months already. So, you know, that counts against his sentence. Uh, so he'll end up serving 17 years, uh, probably, um, something like that from, from here forward. You know, a couple of things she said were interesting. One was she said that she had never given a cooperator a sentence that long. And I think that was pretty telling because he did cooperate extensively uh, and he uh, did so in a way that was helpful. It helped them arrest people. It helped them convict three people for murder, um, of murder. And uh, they didn't get a lot of other convictions. They got, a few, they got some drug convictions out of it. Um, another, what, five, five to 10 convictions or, or guilty pleas really out of it. So he was very helpful, and usually you get a significant break uh, for cooperating. But the reason that she did not give him a significant break is that she did not feel that he had expressed the remorse necessary for his crime. That was one of the judge's reasons for doing it. So it was interesting that she, it was a singular experience for her, you know, to give someone who had cooperated that amount of time. And then ironically, he still got less than the people he paid to kill people on his behalf. You know, he ordered murders. Those people, three of those henchmen were convicted in U.S. court, same court, same judge, and got life in prison. And it's mandatory. They got mandatory life. So uh, he still got significantly less for the murders that he ordered than the people who actually carried out the murder. So again, it's a very strange situation that they allowed him to cooperate in the first place. The overall question here, Evan, is, 
you know, you've been following this story for five years now. Was justice served there? Well, I think that that's a very difficult question. I, I wouldn't say that I have uh, a really strong opinion about it. I think that there was a chance that he was going to get something like time serve. That was possible. And I think most people who looked at it would have said that that seemed wrong, considering the murders, setting aside the drug, prescription drug aspect of it. Um, just the murders, I think, uh, even though he was not pleading guilty to those specific murders in U.S. court, so he was not being sentenced on that basis, you know, knowing about the murders, knowing about the victims, particularly this one victim, Catherine Lee, who was a real estate agent in the Philippines, you know, you would be hard-pressed to think it was just for him to get, you know, a minimal sentence for that. Now, on the other hand, I'm not a punitive sentencing person. That's not, I don't actually believe in that uh, in, a, in an extreme way. So I think our sentences are too long in the United States. And I think we throw people in jail, particularly in drug crimes, uh, because we don't have any better solutions or we refuse to uh, approach better solutions for solving these problems. So I, I wouldn't say that I feel, oh, he deserved 25 years in prison for, for the pills. I mean, there were people who took the pills, cases to trial and, and were acquitted. So uh, because the laws were not were not clear, and so should he be arrested, charged, and sentenced for that? Probably so. Uh, is twenty five years a fair sentence? I'm not sure if it is. That seems harsh to me on those on those particular charges. So I have kind of mixed feelings about it. I, I never feel, except in cases of violent crime, I never feel particularly uh, that it's particularly just for someone to be thrown and thrown away in prison. And 25 years is, it's not thrown away, but it's pretty long. But he committed violent crimes. So that's a different, that's a different animal. In his plan that he submitted to the court for starting his new life, LaRue shares with the court his rationale behind his plan to restart his career in Bitcoin mining. Now, in respect to the Bitcoin mining, the Bitcoin mining relates to the fact that I have an electronic background. I need to follow the line of work that fits my skill set. I have a computer programming background. I have an electronics background. I can't sit here and tell the court that I'm going to do something which does not align with my background. So the Bitcoin mining, yes, I understand there are criminals involved in that business, and if there are criminals involved in everything, but I intend to follow the laws. I intend to follow the regulations. I intend to uh, my, to that business correctly. And uh, I really have no explanation what happened in this case. Uh, there's no excuse for my actions. And the uh, actions are unforgivable. And again, I would like to apologize uh, to the court and to the victim's families. And uh, that's all I have to say, Your Honor. Thank you for your time. So kind of interesting thing for him to choose. We were talking about that a little bit earlier. Would you comment on that? This is one of, there's a few places where the story is, is very tragic and there are victims involved in it. And then there are a few places when it turns into a comedy. And I feel like this is one of them, which is that Paul LaRue has been speculated by people in the Bitcoin community to be a candidate for, uh, to be the, the true identity of Satoshi Nakamoto, the inventor of Bitcoin. 
And I did some reporting on it, and I ultimately concluded he is a very good candidate. He lines up extremely well, but it's very unlikely that it was him. Whoever Satoshi Nakamoto is mined the original Bitcoins, created the original Bitcoins, and still has those. They've never been moved. They've never been spent. So if that person is alive and out there, they have wealth. You know, It fluctuates, but uh, they're a billionaire. And so there's... A lot of speculation that Paul LaRue could be that person. There's a lot of different candidates, but he's one that people talk about a lot. And then it was so odd that in his, in his claim about what he was going to do when he kind of went on the straight and narrow, when he got out of prison, his plan was to mine Bitcoin. It was strange for two reasons. One is he must be aware that he's speculated to be Satoshi Nakamoto. So I don't know if he was just tweaking everyone in a way by saying, uh, I'll just throw this in there. Why not? I mean, that would be, I don't know that he has that kind of sense of humor, but maybe he wanted people to think it. But also he laid out a whole plan for how he was going to do it and the technology. And I'm not sure it really adds up the technology that he claimed to know about and that it would be effective. But to tell a judge that you're going to get out of prison and go on the straight and narrow and the thing you're going to do is mine Bitcoin just seemed like a strategic uh, disaster because that judge probably doesn't know much about Bitcoin, I would guess. And if she knows one thing, it's that Bitcoin is associated with money laundering and illegal activity, which were things that Paul LaRue did. So it's sort of like saying, when I get out of prison, I'm just going to open a big gun shop and sell guns at, 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 at festivals or, or gun shows or whatnot. It's like, you can, that's legal. You could do it in a legal way, but it's just not a thing you would suggest to the judge that you were going to do. Just say you're going to open a restaurant. Just say you're going to start another business. Why would you say you're going into a business that people associate directly with illegal activity? It does not make any sense, except that he was trying to signal someone on the outside about something he wanted to do, or authentically, it's the only thing he could think of. Well, Evan, I, uh, I want to thank you for your insight today and, and this recap, this follow-up to our last discussion in February. Um, sentencing, wow, that took a lot of twists and turns, and there was a lot that came out that needed to be unpacked about that. So I really appreciate it. Any final words for our listeners? If they want to read the whole story, my paperback is out uh, July 21st, so they can pick that up. I mean, it's, it's it really, there's a lot of twists and turns, and I, I sort of have the feeling that this is probably not the last one. You, you never know what it's going to be. Like, presumably, he's away for 25 years, but uh, there's just always new, there are always new things to unearth in the Paul LaRue story. I want to thank my guest today, award-winning author of The Mastermind, Evan Ratliff. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you.